<laughs> well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please go ahead and turn in them to Acts chapter 28. We are finally here. After about a year and a half, we have been walking through the book of Acts verse by verse, and now we are at the last chapter. And it's going to be a glorious time as we reflect on the joy that we have seen throughout the pages and chapters and verses of this wonderful book. We have walked through 28 chapters together, and we have seen the indomitable, unstoppable power of God in the tested perseverance of his church and the powerful witness of the Holy Spirit all along as he was growing his followers in maturity. And now, the book of Acts only spans about 30-ish years of church history, but in that short time, we have seen shaking fishermen anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit and standing up to the religious leaders and authorities of their time. We have seen them healing the sick, and we also have seen the first Christians to be martyred and lose their life for their message. But that didn't deter the church. The church continued to speak the message boldly as thousands and thousands came to Christ only by the power of God. We have seen this message break out and reach the neighboring countries. We have seen hardened hearts, the hardest heart. Paul the apostle on the road to Damascus become blind only to see for the very first time in his life. And then we've seen that same man picked up and taken to the Gentiles and to the common folk and then to kings and rulers with the same message that impacted them, that there's only hope in the name of Jesus. We have seen prisons broken from the inside from a song. We have seen riots and beatings, and last week we were even in a shipwreck. And yet we have seen person and person, despite it all, come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And through the whole book, which is better called the Acts of the Holy Spirit than the Acts of the Apostle, because it's really the Holy Spirit doing all of this work through them, we have seen his power to change hearts, the power to strengthen believers, and his power to fill his people with incredible boldness. And this week isn't slowing down. It's no different as we come to the climactic end of Acts, the book of Acts. And here's the big idea that I want you to consider this week, this sermon as we go through Acts 28. I'm going to repeat this phrase a handful of times. You're going you're to be sagging in your sleep time we're done with this sermon. But the first, the, the big idea is that the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. Do you believe that? The kingdom of God cannot be stopped. That is a profound truth. And it's a truth that when we truly understand it and believe it, it is very, very comforting for us as believers. Even in spite of pain, suffering, circumstances, hardships, this is the truth that keeps us going. And we're going to reflect on this throughout the book of Acts. But I think sometimes we forget this truth. We forget that the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. Let me put it this way. I'm not the biggest sports guy, so if you come up to me and talk to me about sports after service, I'm going to, yeah, it's just not going to go too far. But I do enjoy hockey. Particularly, I'm, I'm the playoff hockey guy. I only really watch it when, when the playoffs are on. And now many of you know that I am a Habs fan. I know, to each their own. Still better than Calgary. <laughs> um, 
But the Habs were one of the best teams in their day. And when the Habs are not doing well, a fun thing to do is to watch the reruns when they did win the cup. But what's what's what about uh, but but about since '93 the Lord has stopped blessing blessing that team. They haven't won anything since. But that's besides the point. But watching reruns is not the same thing, right? Like you're not sitting on the edge of your seat wondering if they're going to pull it off. They're in the third period. Are they really going to get the goal? Are they going to get the winning goal? Um, and it's just not the same because you know what's going to happen. And it's the same as followers of Christ. We often forget that we're on the winning side that Christ has already won, that we're not fighting for victory as Christians, we're fighting from victory, amen? Christ has already trampled over death and darkness, and he is ruling, reigning in, in, in heaven right now over everything. He has authority, he has won, and since we are his children, his ambassadors, so have we, we are on the winning side. But sometimes we think that somehow the kingdom of God can be stopped. Sometimes we forget this, and, and, and we, we think that somehow they'll blow it in the final period. They're doing really well right now, but I don't know. The world is getting pretty dark out there. Are we sure the kingdom of God is going to survive this? We think somehow Jesus, in the end, is going to be defeated, that the gospel won't go for, forth. And when we believe this, we then in turn live lives of defeat. But we must remember the words of our Savior to Peter, in Matthew 16, 18, he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And then what does he say? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That idea in the original language is that there are gates of hell. This is not the gates of the church, but gates of hell in our world. And as the church goes forward, they can't prevail. They will break forward church will take that territory. Do you believe that? Like it's not, I, some, sometimes we believe this is like the local church is a gate and hell can't come against it. No, we're meant to take the kingdom into the world and the gates of hell will not hold against the gospel message. It will break forth. Yeah, you can get excited about that. If that was a clap, I don't know if that was. I'll take it. The kingdom of God cannot be stopped. But what happens when we forget this, which is often the case, and when we forget this, we begin to live defeated lives as Christians. We don't believe in the power of God. We begin to live in discouragement. We begin to fall into fear and feel helpless. When I stop believing that God is all-powerful, that's when I'm up all night going, I hope I don't get cancer and die. I hope I don't get a bad doctor's report. Oh, what happens when I die? Am I going to really go to heaven? I start believing that my end is here on this earth. I start limiting God's power. And we begin to believe lies as well. We begin to believe lies about our position in Christ. We begin to replace his truth with lies and then fall into sin without even fighting it because of those lies. So my goal today in Acts 28 and the little time we have together is demonstrate for us once again how incredibly unstoppable the kingdom of God really is. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three feeble attempts throughout chapter 28 of the enemy trying to stop the kingdom of God. And then we're going to see how Jesus just plows through those attempts like a hot knife through butter. Nothing can stop the kingdom. It go, the gospel goes forward and the kingdom advances. So the pattern for us that we're going to see in each of these attempts is opposition and opportunity. Opposition and opportunity. We're going to see it three times. So let's have a look at the story together and watch just how unstoppable the church is. 
picking up in verse 1 of chapter 28. After we've been brought safely through, we have learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us, and because it began to rain and it was cold. So the shipwreck, if you remember last week, just took place in Acts 27, and they were cold, they were soaking wet, they were probably spewing out salt water. Who's ever done that? That's not a pleasant sight. And 276 people, according to Acts 27, and a miracle from God are saved from the stormy sea. It's cold, it's mid-October, so they make a fire, and Paul begins to help. And then we see what happens to Paul in verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. A viper came out, and because of the heat, fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the, the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. What, what's that mindset? It's karma. They're believing they have a karmic understanding of the, wor uh, of the world. They go, well, Clearly this guy is good. He was rescued from the sea. But then they see this viper attached to his hand, and they're like, oh, yeah, justice got him. The sea didn't get him, but justice got him for all the wrongdoings he has done. He's a murderer. Clearly he is going to die for all the bad things that, has happened, that has done, he has done in his life. And this is the first opposition that we encounter in Acts 28. It's arrived, and God's man has been bit bitten by a venomous snake, and he's going down. That's what they believe. They think he's going to die. Paul was God's man uh, with uh, God's message on God's mission. And now if Paul was to die, what's going to happen to the mission? What's going to happen to the message? Is it going to go forward? Or is it just going to pitter out on the island of Malta? Because according to the natives, he's dying. He's dead. They're waiting for him to just keel over. But here's the thing that they don't understand. They don't understand when it comes to the kingdom of God, snakes can't stop it. Amen? Snakes can't stop the kingdom of God. Look at verse 5. It says, He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall over dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Paul gets mistaken as a god quite often. They were waiting and watching. They believed with all their being that he was going to die for his wrongdoing. And maybe they were even gathering other people like, hey, this prisoner just got bit by that snake. Let's watch him die together because they had their TV. They've got to give them a break. They needed some entertainment, right? But nothing happens. Nothing happens. They change their minds dramatically. They say he's a god. And nothing happens to the man of God. And this makes sense. Because do we really believe that a snake can stop the kingdom of God? Like a snake has already tried that. In the garden it tried it. And it, and it had a little bit of some success, but, 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 it, but it ultimately failed because of the prophecy. And then that same snake tempted the master in the wilderness and failed because of the word of God to counter the lies. And then that same snake struck at the heel of the master, as the prophecy in Genesis said he would. And the master did fall. He did die. His heel was bruised, according to Genesis. But his fall crushed the head of the snake. But the master didn't stay, stay down, amen? He got up from that fall. And now he reigns in heaven over all things. And that old broken snake, well, it's symbolic what happens in the story. He's going to get tossed into eternal fire for his rebellion. Like, come on, snake, Satan. You're going to go with the snake thing again? 
How naive do you think we are? You're going to try to take down Paul, God's man, with a viper bite? Like that's what you're resorting to? There's no swelling. There's no sickness. No death. Paul shakes it off because the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. God's servant is invincible until God decides otherwise. That's about you too. When God has placed you on a mission, which we all are on, you are invincible until God says otherwise. doesn't mean you won't get hurt. doesn't mean you won't get bitten a little bit. But it will not be your end unless God has ordained it. Do you believe that? Because that gives you a lot of hope. And Paul believed this wholeheartedly. Look at his reaction. He doesn't go around running and screaming like, oh, there's a snake on my hand. He doesn't even try to cut his, his wound and suck out the poison. He just kind of calmly shakes it off in the fire, probably so it wouldn't bite anyone else. Because God, or Paul knew that God wanted him in Rome. He stood beside him in a prison and said, you will go to Rome. And he believed God, took him at his word, and he knew nothing would stop that. This will not be my end because I'm meant to be in Rome. Now let me apply this to our life because this is not a prescription for you to go around picking up snakes, okay? I know there's those weird Christians out there that handle snakes. Okay, that's a bad idea. You're going to die. All right, don't tempt the Lord that way. Okay, don't test him. Um, and, uh, but remember a couple of months ago when we were walking through some other parts in the book of Acts and I talked about the difference between prescriptive texts and descriptive texts in books like the book of Acts. Some things are prescriptive. If a doctor writes you a prescription, you have to do it. Well, you should anyways if you want to live, right, or get better. But it's, if it's descriptive, it's just a story of what God is doing. It doesn't mean that we need to bend over backwards to make that event happen again. We're not meant to go around picking up snakes. So this is a description of God's provision and God's care over his people despite the circumstances. So could this happen? Yeah. But we shouldn't go looking out and make, trying to make it happen. Well, God protected Paul, so I'm going to stick my hand in this cobra basket and show these people that God is going to know you're going to die in front of me. Okay, uh, there's no, that's not a surprise. So this is a description of God's provision, God's care in God, over God's people, despite what happens to them. So even in the pain, whatever the circumstances are, whatever it may be, God has provision and God has care. So with that, what are the circumstances in your life right now? What are you going through? What's pressing on you right now? What's the snake bite in your life, per se, the pain in your life right now? And are you believing about this circumstance that, that you're facing, that it's going to defeat you, that it's going to be your end? Are you thinking that God's not with you right now, that he's left you, and you're just stranded on some random island, and you're hurt, pain, or crushed? Are you thinking that somehow God is not holding whatever you're going through in his hand and sovereignly caring for you and control of you? Are you forgetting that it was promised to us, not an easy life, but an uneasy life? That this life would be difficult. And that was promised. And, but even in all we face, we have this hope of God's provision, God's care over you, over me, his people, even in difficulty. Jesus said in John 16, that in this world you will have trouble. But he didn't stop there, right? He says, take heart. Why did he say take heart? Because he said, I have overcome the world. Amen? Take heart, church. God, Jesus, he has overcome the world. So in the pain that you're in, in your circumstances that seek to crush you, take heart and remember God's provision.
God's care over his people, and that at the end of the day, the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. This life and all that it throws at you is not your end. Okay, we become so narrow-minded. We think these, like Psalm 90 says, you know, well, maybe 70, maybe 80 years we get. We think this is all there is, that all that matters. But there's so much. We're living in eternity now. And this is not your end. You have eternal life with your king. These 80 years, if you're lucky, are just a blimp on the radar. They're important, don't get me wrong. But for you to die in your sickness, for you to go home tomorrow, it's not a blimp on the radar. It's sad, it hurts, it's painful. It's painful for those who are left behind, but for you, you're standing face to face with your Savior. No longer seen in part, but seen in whole. Amen? As he's wiping away our tears. So Paul shakes off the snake into the fire, and just like that, the opposition is gone. And now comes the opportunity that arose from that opposition. Picking up in verse 7, which says, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Pibidus, uh, who, uh, who received us and enter, entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Pibidus lay sick in fever in the century, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had disease also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. We see healing. We see gospel moments in an entire island witnessing the power of Christ. We also see the sovereign Lord providing for his servants through just random people on a random island. You see, God loves Paul dearly. God also loves the people of Malta. He loves Paul, but he loves the people of Malta. And if it's going to take a storm, if it's going to take a shipwreck and a, a wreck and a viper bite, then so be it. So with that perspective, how does God want to use what you're going through to reach somebody in your life? How does God want to use your pain, your difficulty, your snake bite for his greater glory? Let me ask you the question this way. How do you view your difficulties? How do you view your hardships? Do you view your difficulties, your pains, as opportunities to tell people about Jesus? Or do you just sit and wallow in it in self-pity? Where is God trying to lead you in your struggles? What is he preparing for you to do as you suffer well unto his glory? Ponder that. We should always be pondering that because it gives us an eternal perspective rather than just a narrow perspective. It gives you hope in those dark nights of the soul where you're crying out to God, is this ever going to end? God, how can you use this? It gives us a great perspective on hardships. But getting back to our verses today, we see in verse 11 that Paul and all his people stayed in Malta for about three months. They were likely leaving around February or March, which would put them around the end of storm season, so they had no more uh, issues. And then in verse 12, they make it to Syracuse. In verse 13, they get to the toe of Italy. And then in Portali, uh, 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 I don't know, I'm not going to say these names right. And then in verse 14, we read that he finally made it to Rome. And Paul is supposed to be here all this time. God has promised Paul that he'd be in Rome, and now Paul has delivered on his promise. And he has finally landed on Roman soil after long roads of riots, accusations, and the hardest one for all of us, waiting. He did a lot of waiting. Like, 
God promised that he was going to be in Rome years ago, and he sat in prison cells. He's been through riots and, and false trials, like, like just craziness. I thought God's plan for my life was supposed to be easy. God, you told me I'm supposed to go here, and I've just been going up and down, up and down, and almost died every time. What's going on? So after a long road of riots and accusations and waiting, Paul is here. And all that stuff that Paul went through was not meaningless. God used it to get his servant to that location at the precise time, at God's time. I'm sure Paul was a lot like us. He wanted to be there yesterday, right? He, he's been wanting to go, and that's where he's been focusing. But he arrives at God's time. And we're told that his friends are allowed to visit him in Rome and tend to his needs. This is a plus. At least he's not in a dark Roman prison. We see all that in verses 15 to 16. And then in verse 17, we read this. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, so here comes Paul's defense. Remember, they slandered Paul back in, in Jerusalem. They're trying to kill him in cold blood for what he believed. So now he's gathering all the Jewish leaders. He can't go to the synagogue because he's under house arrest. So he calls them, and he gives his defense. And here's his defense. He says, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. This is his defense, and it's a good one. He's saying I'm innocent. I did nothing. I, I, I spoke no wrong or evil against the Jewish people or their customs. The Romans even looked at my life and my story and declared me innocent. I appealed to Caesar only because there were some Jewish troublemakers that were trying to kill me if I was released. So I'm not pressing any charges against Israel. I only want to be cleared of the charges against me. That's why I have brought the Jewish leaders together, you who are sitting here today, so I could tell you the story of the gospel as well. I love that. He's really just wanting to share the gospel. He doesn't, he doesn't care about his charges. Since it's because of the gospel and the hope of Israel that I'm wearing these chains. Now, what I want you to see right here in the midst of his confinement, in the midst of his house arrest, in the midst of his bounding in his home, the kingdom of God is still at work. You see it? The kingdom of God is still moving despite his circumstances. And why is that? Because when it comes to the kingdom of God, snakes can't stop it and shackles can't stop it either. Amen? You can picture the religious authorities back in Israel when they see Paul getting on the boat and leaving. They would have been overjoyed. Finally, this troublemaker's gone. Bye-bye, Paul. Hopefully the Romans take care of him the Roman way, and maybe finally we're done with this Jesus nonsense. As the evil plans of man are at play in Paul's life, the providence of God is moving them on and directing using them. God gets them to do exactly what he wants them to do. And what ends up happening for Paul? God's man on God's mission walks into Rome, guarded by guards, by soldiers, into the center of the Roman Empire. He rents a room. He sets up shop. He starts meeting with people. And what does he do? He shares the gospel. <laughs> I love it. In the peace of Rome, 
and the communication systems of Rome and the roads of Rome and the common language of Rome all pour fuel on the blazing inferno of the gospel. You can picture the Jewish authorities wanted to snuff out Paul, snuff out his wick, and by trying to do so, by sending him to Rome, they all accidentally poured gasoline all over his little flame. And it exploded. And it spread like they could never imagine. And though he was a man in chains, he preached a savior who could set the captives free. Though he was a man in bondage, he never stopped preaching Christ. Because the kingdom of God can't be stopped, even by shackles. Listen, you can bind my hands. The world can come in here and arrest me and bind me and confine me to prison, but you cannot confine the moving of the Holy Spirit. This doesn't just mean physically either. Have you ever felt like this before? That your hands have been tied in a situation? That you're confined? I think we all kind of know what being confined is after two years of COVID, right? You can't fix the situation. You can't stop the process no matter what you do. You can't escape feeling like this is beyond your power to correct and leave you confused on what to do next. And listen, here's what's happening in the midst of your confusion. God is still advancing his kingdom. And we should look for that. And he's using your circumstances around you today to impact the community that you touch. Don't ever think for a second that the kingdom of God is on hold because of your pain or because of your circumstance. God is way bigger than that. The kingdom of God is moving, and it's moving in your life as well. This isn't a professional's job. I know this is my quote-unquote career to be your pastor, but this is not a, pa a, a professional's job. This is our job to extend the kingdom of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. The good of God is that he's continually advancing his glory by advancing the kingdom in my, in my life, in your life, and in the world. And those are not mutually exclusive. God wants great glory for himself, and he deserves it, and he will get it by advancing the kingdom in our lives. And by doing that in our lives, he will advance in the world by where we live. Like a good father, he'll take you by the hand, and he will lead you into all things. He'll guide you. And, and this is the reality that scripture speaks of. God's greatest aim for our life, I know this might be a little shocking, is not that you would know his love more. His greatest aim in, 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 in life is not that we would know more of his joy. His greatest aim is not peace in our lives right now. Now, don't hear me wrong. Those are all God's desires, and those are all realities in God, but they only come as the kingdom advances, as the gospel sinks deeply in our lives, and as we begin to grow in Christ more. In other words, they are all byproducts by walking in faith. When you come to Christ so you can have more peace, when you come to Christ so you can have more love, you're coming to Christ for all the wrong reasons. Because you're coming for what you've been given. But when you come to Christ because he's worthy of all praise, honor, and glory, those things will just grow naturally in your lives. And God, as a kind father, will lead you into them. So what does this mean? It means that the life that you and I are living this might be a shock. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not even about Fellowship Baptist Church. It's about God and not us. But the glorious truth we celebrate is that God has chosen to include us. Isn't that amazing? And not just include us, but to call us his children. And not just his children, but then put us as ambassadors in the world to be examples. And because of God's great desire 
to move his kingdom forward in us and through us in our lives, uh, then if our lives are full of distractions and diversions and other loves, which they often are if you're anything like me, we get distracted, then it's important that we must understand that God will highlight those and God will begin to push those out of your life. And oftentimes, this is done through trials. Like Peter talks about, the, the fire of the metal, melting down the metal, bringing out all the impurities so the metal's stronger. That's what our trials do to us. So how has God been trying to get your attention this week, this month, this year? How has God been working to advance and grow the gospel in your heart and through you? What distractions do you have? What diversions do you have? What other loves are you clinging to that are getting in the way of God using you effectively? And he's exposing those to you through trials. It's hard to see God through circumstances. It is. I get that. It's easy to say it, but once you're in a horrible circumstance, it's hard to find God sometimes. But my prayer is that God would not only just help you, but you see him through them that our trials are not meaningless, that it's not about our comforts or our security, but it's about God's glory and our good. So we see that the kingdom of God is advancing, and even shackles can't stop it. The opposition brings opportunity. Look at how it happens in verse 21. It says, And then they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you. Interesting, they're saying that they've actually heard nothing bad about him. And none of the brothers coming here before have spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for we regard this sect. And actually, if you study this in the Greek, I don't like to use Greek much, but this sect is actually they're calling him a cult. So they have heard bad things. They're lying. But anyways, uh, we know that everything is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him and at, uh, at his uh, lodging in greater numbers. From morning till even, evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So remember, Paul knows his Bible very well. He can walk circles around these guys. He's opening verse from the Old Testament after verse from the Old Testament, showing Jesus time and time again. He is sharing the gospel with the Jewish leaders in Rome. He was chained, but he was free to preach. He was chained, but he has lost nothing. He chained, but free in his heart. Because chains can't stop the kingdom of God. Jesus had his hands and his feet bound and nailed to the cross. But he still conquered death. He still conquered death. Chains couldn't stop Paul because the grave couldn't stop Jesus. Amen? Come on, we got to get excited about that. Come on, we got to get excited about that. Amen? The great, yeah. Chains couldn't stop Paul because the grave couldn't stop Jesus. That applies to your life as well. Paul may be chained, but the gospel is unhindered because the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. So take heart, church. Have hope. You're on the winning team. But there's more opposition coming, which is just flat-out rejection. Verse 24 says, and some were convinced by what he said, but others were in disbelief. Again, Paul is met with the familiar rejection or reality of rejection. The gospel moved forward in some lives, but others, it produced disagreements and opposition, which is seen in verse 25. It says, in disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. 
and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart was growing dull with their ears and can barely hear, and their eyes they have been closed, lest they should uh, see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. So Paul quotes Isaiah, who was an Old Testament prophet, who was about 800 years before Paul's life. And this is an ancient reference. Imagine, you know, you just pull out an 800-year-old reference in a, in a conversation. Unless one of your friends is a historian, it's probably going to go right over their heads, right? But Paul's audience picked up exactly what he was trying to say. And what he was saying is that those in that situation today had ears that couldn't hear. They had eyes who couldn't see. Their hearts were dull and they were blind. And Paul says that the Jewish believers don't believe, uh, or leaders don't believe in this setting, then you are in danger of doing the same thing that Isaiah's people did. Healing is right here, he says. Sight is right here. Jesus is right here, the Messiah. Life for you to take is right at your fingertips, but you can't take it because your hearts are so dull. And this is true in our time as well. We have affluent but deaf. We have rich yet blind, mocking the hope of Jesus clutching to their false gods that can't save them, taunting the message of the gospel, all the while complaining and wondering why life is so empty and never arriving at the truth of Jesus Christ. The only hope in life and salvation is often rejected. It's often rejected. But here's the thing. When it comes to the kingdom of God, snakes can't stop it, shackles can't stop it, and neither can scorners. Scorners can't stop either. You can reject it, you can mock it, but that doesn't stop it. Because if you don't want it, somebody else will. Verse 28 says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God, uh, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Those are three powerful words. They will listen. And the kingdom of God advances, and the message of Jesus reaches the hearts of those who will hear it. That this Jesus surrendered his life, he surrendered his throne on high, his hands and feet were confined and nailed to the cross, he walked a sinless life, he suffered scorns at the hands of men, men that he came to save, he hung upon a cross, and he paid the punishment for our sins. He was bitten by the snake, as it were, and he dies. And he rose on the third day and offered life and forgiveness and hope in the kingdom of God to anyone who would follow it. Verse 30, as Paul closes, we hear this. It says, And he lived two whole years in his own expense and welcomed all to come, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. God is on the move. And that's how the book of Acts ends. But that's not how the story ends, amen? We just covered the first 30 years, but a lot has happened from that point on. Because this isn't a story about the beginning of a guy named Paul or Peter. This isn't even the story of just church history or the, or, or the early church. It's the beginning of a greater story. It's a beginning of a story of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So here it begins from Rome, it would eventually spread throughout the whole Roman Empire into places like Africa, Asia, and Europe, with men like Ignatius and the martyr Polycarp who would die in Rome, and then Clement the Elder. The kingdom of uh, uh, and the gospel of God would then survive 
Roman persecution from a long list of evil Roman emperors. And it would be built up by church fathers like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Origen, and Tertullian, and others. The church would then push off and defend against thousands upon thousands of heresies because the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. And then would rise up men like Augustine, and then Constantine, and Athanasius, and then we would see the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon. And then we would see Rome fall to the Vandals. And then it would be rebuilt just to fall again. Like, but the kingdom of God was still standing. Boniface would then reach the Germans. Islam would arise. Patrick would re reach the Irish. The Crusades would ensue. Universities would begin to emerge. And Constantinople would fall. While the Black Death would wipe off 40% of people across the European continent. All the while, the kingdom of God would not be hindered. The church of Rome would then begin to decay. Wycliffe would translate the Bible into English. Gutenberg would invent the printing press. Huss would be executed in Bohemia by the Roman Catholic Church. And then 100 plus years later, a swan would arise. Martin Luther, a German monk, would nail the 95 Theses to the church door in Germany, the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, and it would usher in the Protestant Reformation. Nations would begin to rise in the West, and England would begin to persecute the Puritans. Europeans would then begin to settle the Americans as wars rage back home. Brainyard would inspire a generation to reach the lost, and then a nation, the United States, would be founded. Then Enlightenment, and then the Awakenings, and all the revivals, and then Darwin, Nietzsche, and Freud, but a kingdom of God would not be stopped. Then famine then pestilence, then wars again as the 20th century would advance. Then we would see Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Castro in the HIV epidemic. Then we would have Y2K, 9-11, Boko Haram, and then COVID-19, and the Russian-Ukraine crisis. And then you and I live today. And the only thing, yeah. And the only thing that has stayed constant throughout all of that is that the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. Amen? Amen. You can throw a snake at it. You can chain it up. You can scoff at it. But in reality, nothing will stop it. Nothing will stop the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They beat him. They mocked him. They crucified him. They put a stone in front of the entrance and placed guards there and they laughed. And then the greatest comeback in history. Jesus himself came back to life and saved us all. If the message of Acts has taught us anything, it's that this life is not about you and me. Acts is not a biography of Peter or Paul or even the early church. It's a story of how Jesus loves the world and then how he's going to reach the world through these local churches. This life is about Jesus, so we take heart even when we face difficulties because we know despite it all, Jesus is advancing his kingdom in us and through us and in the world right now and nothing will stop it. So loose conclusion of Acts brings the book to the climactic and leaving us exactly where the Holy Spirit wants us, ready for the next chapter. We are living in Acts 29 right now. The gospel still advances to the ends of the earth, and God has called all his people to live as the protagonist in this glorious chapter. Luke ends this narrative with an implied question. Peter preached the kingdom in Jerusalem. Philip proclaimed Christ in Samaria. Paul announced Christ around the Roman Empire. Where will you go? Where will you go? 
Will the church today fail its divine mandate? Or will we, like the Apostle Paul, march forward in faith into Drumheller with zeal for God and on his promises? We face a task unfinished, church. It's not over. May God grant us strength and courage to stand in that long line of godly men and women, spirit-empowered, faithful witnesses, which stretches all the way back to an unlikely band of first-century pioneers. Those men and women who, filled with God's Spirit, did indeed turn the world upside down. Let's pray. So can, so can we. So can we. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this church, this, this gathering of believers, Lord, this extension, this embassy of your kingdom here in Drumheller. Father, I pray that you use us as your ambassadors in this town or in places where we walk and go, live and work. Father, that you would use us to extend the kingdom into the hearts and minds of those who we engage with. Father, that we wouldn't be so narrow-minded and think that these 80 years is all that it is. But Father, that we'd have an eternal perspective, knowing that our pains, our sufferings, and our circumstances, although are hard and seem to never end here, are yet mighty and terrible in the light of your glorious grace. So we thank you, Father, that you don't leave us, that you didn't just rise and ascend into heaven after you rose again and left us and said, I hope you guys can figure this all out on your own. But from that short little spew of history, Lord, we see your faithfulness throughout generations, throughout the darkest generations. Father, you were faithful. Nothing could stop you, church. So, Father, I pray that as we go forward today into our lives again, we resume the normalcy of, of Sunday evenings and Monday mornings, Lord, that we wouldn't look at it as just mundane, but we would look at it as gospel opportunities to go forward. We ask all this in Jesus.